0: Well, welcome. If you're watching online, you're in the room. If you're new or you've been around for a while, that's what our church is about. That's it. It's like, well, what does this church feel like? I hope changed and transformed lives. And this is really exciting because today we celebrate four years as a church. Isn't that incredible? Four years. Now, you may not know this, because, I mean, why would you know this? But most churches that die or fail, fail in between years three and five. Why? Because it's around that time that any external resources or funding run out. And so you got to go, are the people in this church going to take on the full responsibility of the mission of God? And let me just tell you, from day one, that happened in our church. I tell this story often because we cannot forget the narrative. We cannot forget the story. We had 30 people move from Raleigh-Durham, and they didn't move from Raleigh-Durham because they thought Winston was a cooler place to live. Okay. You can argue about if Winston's a cooler place than Raleigh-Durham. They moved here because they wanted to reach people. They wanted to serve and bless the city. So we had college students who said, I'll I'll drive for Uber and I'll be a barista at Starbucks when I graduate. You had other people say, I'm selling my house. Uh, My kids are going to a different school. We're, We're going to figure this out. 30 people moved with us. We met 70 people here who said, man, my life was changed at the Summit, our sending church. So we had 100 people. And they said, we're gonna pray, we're gonna tithe, we're gonna serve, we're gonna share, we're gonna invite, and they have been all in. And let me just tell you, over the last four years, our church has grown spiritually, numerically, and organizationally. And just so you know, that's what should happen in a healthy church, all three. We've grown spiritually. Let me tell you what that feels like. It feels like I get emails every week about people's lives being changed as church. Had a guy email me this week. Hey, I've been coming around. Just wanted to say thank you. Been coming for a year and a half. I'm a different dad and a better father and a better husband because I'm at Two Church. It's like, well, praise the Lord. Who doesn't want to hear that? And who isn't a happy wife who hears that story too, right? All right, not only that, we've grown numerically, okay? Outreach Magazine, you've never heard of it, but every year they come out with a list of the 100 fastest growing churches in the nation. We were on that list this year. Not only that, according to that list, we are the fastest growing church this past year in the whole state of North Carolina. So I just say that as a spectator, God, you're up to something unique in our church, through our church, beyond our church. The Lord is giving us influence. I had a church planner call me. You know, I thought, well, you know, this, I was a church planner at one point. No, hey, you know, he probably wants some funding. So I'm, I'm ready for that conversation. And I said, well, and he said, actually, I'm not calling about that. I just want to call to thank you. I said, really? What's, what, what's that about? He said, well, I felt called to church planning through your Abraham series. I'm like, I didn't even think that was that great of a series, you know. <laughs> He said, well, I was called a church planning during it. And then he said, then he said something else to describe me. He goes, he goes, and my executive, my future executive pastor, I think's in your church. I'm like, he's taking Pastor Dave? You know? <laughs> so he said, no, 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 no. He said, he said, there's a guy in your church, he's working a normal job. And I later find out this guy's this guy's not a community leader. He's, he's been attending our church, member of our church now for a couple months. And he's asking the question, is the Lord working on his heart to be an executive pastor for this guy? And then, he says, and then he says, hey, and, and this Christian cook guy, some of you know him, we sent him up to New York City. He says, hey, I heard about that Christian cook guy, and that just really encouraged me, we wanna be ascending church from day one. So I'm like, Lord, you've just been giving us this incredible influence just in four years. And, and then this past week, if to show some pictures, we, we had the Weekender, we talk about it all the time. And this is exciting because even as we're growing, more and more people are joining us. The Weekender, by the way, it's how we say, would you like to join us on this mission? Because here's the truth, when, when we talk about the last four years, a lot of you, maybe most of you, you'd go, well, well thank the Lord, because I prayed about that, and I gave to that, and I served in that area, and I invited, and I'm a part of it. And then there's a whole other group of you who you are not a part of it. You come when you have nothing else to do. You watch online when you have nothing else to do. You give nothing, you make excuses about serving, you're not connected to a community group. And so you look at the last four years, you're like, that's cool, I had nothing to do with that. And what we're saying is, that's Okay but you don't want the next four years or the next four decades to be like that. So it's to say, hey, let's welcome and join us because here's the truth. As as I look to the next four years or four decades or whatever, here's what I'm telling you. We're going to reach our kids. That's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to plant more and more churches. We're going to plant churches internally. We're going to raise up men and women internally from this church to go out. Some of you are going to go out to cities you don't even know about yet and you're going to help us do that. We're going to deepen our partnerships in world missions. We're going to do that. And look around. We're in the middle of COVID and this building is packed across three services. We're gonna find a bigger home. We're going to do all of those things and we want you to be a part of it. It's an incredibly exciting time to be a part of our church and to be a part of reaching this city. So with that said, let's thank the Lord and then we've got a lot to cover today in Exodus chapter two, pray with me. What I wanna pray right now for just the last four years of our church, Lord, and we just are so grateful for the grace of God on our church. And we we feel it, Lord, we've seen baptisms, we've seen kids come to Christ, we've seen adults come to Christ, we've seen marriages restored, we've seen addictions broken, we've seen people open up their Bibles for the first time in a long time, we've seen people care about the spiritual needs of other people in our city and in their workplace. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, and just continue to give us a vision of what the next four or the next 40 years might look like for our church to be faithful, to serve, bless, and reach our city. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, you can turn to Exodus chapter two. If you're new, it's the second book of the Old Testament. And the book of Exodus is really a story about how God changes and saves a people. So in chapter one, it's like really bad news. I told you that last week. Open up chapter one. If you reread that chapter, it's like people are enslaved. The good good kind of first faithful generation dies. Uh, the government, is, there's a totalitarian dictator in government. It's like not good news at all, end of chapter one. And we kind of trace this theme of providence in chapter one. And now in chapter two, we're gonna be introduced for the first time to Moses. He's gonna be one of the main characters in the entire book. And, and let me just tell you this, the book of Exodus, the main theme in the book of Exodus, or there's many themes, but one of the main themes is, is the way out, that's what the word means. Exodus means a way out, right? And some of you, you, you know what, it li- what it's like to need a way out. You're like, I need a way out of debt. <laughs> I need a way out of this toxic relationship, right? I need need a way out of 2020. Okay, that's what we're all trying to feel. How do do we get out of this, right? But we all all kind of feel this sense of we need a way out. And and what God does in this book, and I want you to understand this, because you know, like I said this before, you open up a book and it's a big book, like it's 40 chapters. It's like, what's this whole book about? Three words, deliver, demand, dwell. That's the whole book. God's gonna deliver a people, then he's gonna demand things from them, give them the law, then he's gonna dwell with them, give them the tabernacle, okay? That's the whole book. In fact, the law, God demanding things, shows up in the dead center of the book, Exodus chapter 20. So you can think about the book this way. God delivers us, then demands things of us, then dwells with us. And that's important because religion is I deliver myself, right? Religion is I pull myself up by my bootstraps, and that either leads to being very, very prideful, I did it, or very, very despairing, I can't do it. Uh, Christianity is the only religion in the world that says God is going to deliver you and not just so you can go to heaven and have a nice life. He's going to deliver you and then he's even gonna demand things of you, liberate you, then give you a law so he can live with you. Because he wants, that's the whole, the whole last third of the book is the tabernacle. What's that about? God wants to save you to have a relationship with you. That's the whole point. And that's the story of all of scripture. And so, now the truth is, sometimes God delivers you from things, right? And you don't even know that. You're like, how many car accidents have you not had? You don't know, right? That's called being delivered from something. How many terrible relationships did you not end up in? Thank the Lord, right? Sometimes God delivers us from things, sometimes God delivers us around things. We get to see it, we're like, oh goodness, I'm glad I could see that God delivered me from that relationship or that person or that sin struggle or whatever. Most times God delivers us through things, which we don't like. It's painful, it's long, but it matures our character and it shows how great God is. And so what I want us to do today is that we're going to move from seeing the providence and plan of God in a whole people's lives to seeing it in one person's life, Moses. And chapter 2 of the book of Exodus is going to cover 80 years of Moses' life in just 25 verses. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter two, verse one. We're gonna kind of follow this. And, he, and here's the big idea. I don't have a lot of points today, but just gotta, I've got a big idea. Here's the big idea or question. How is God preparing you for what is next? Right, you are one day, or you will one day be who you are now becoming, okay? And what I hope you do is I hope this today, as we look back on Moses' life, we're gonna be able to see that even through the good things and the hard things, God was using all of it to prepare him. And in the same way, what I hope you will be able to do at some level, because you can't understand your life looking through the windshield, you have to look through the rearview mirror of your life and go, oh, that's how God was working. My hope is as we look at the life of Moses, you might look at your own life and go, okay, I see how God was using my parents' divorce. Even though that's a terrible thing, God used it. And I see how God used the first seven years of our difficult marriage. And I, and I see how God used this addiction in my past and I overcame it and God now helps me minister to other people. And You have no idea, I mean respectfully, but you have no idea what God's doing in your life. You have no idea that God might be using the most painful things in your life for good long term. And so with that said, let's let's look at the things God uses. Chapter two, verse one says this, now a man, and that's gonna be Moses' dad. In other places we get his name and we get Moses' mom's name, but we don't get much information here in verse one. says this, now a man from the house of Levi went and he took as his wife a Levite woman. Okay, so man and woman, okay. The woman conceived and bore a son, That's going to be Moses. And when she saw, and this is interesting for those of you guys who kind of like to trace the themes of scripture, it literally says, when she saw that he was good. So very similar, God sees that creation is good. Now it's being reenacted here in Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter two. Moses's mom sees that Moses is good. It says this, and she hid him for three months. We're going to see this, that the first thing God's going to use in your life is your family to shape you. And you're like, oh, that's, that's not good news, right? <laughs> some of you, not, that's not the news that you wanted. Well, here, a couple things about that. First of all, think about Moses. Moses is born at the wrong time, humanly speaking. It's like you're born as a slave in a time of where they want to kill male babies. He's, he's born the wrong sex at that time in the sense of uh, if he would have been a woman, a female, he would have been fine. But because he's a male, they're going to kill him. Uh, he's born to the wrong socioeconomic class. He's born to some poor people, Right? It's like you think, he's, he's the wrong ethnicity. If he was Egyptian, he'd be fine. So he's got a real, from one perspective, he's got a really bad start to his life. But he's got something really important. He's got two godly parents who love him. You know, I, I want you to encourage you parents, parents, and those of you who will be parents, you have the opportunity to be the most important, influential, and impactful person in your kid's life. You know, it's interesting. I was, my, my son's playing baseball right now. My, my oldest son, my middle child, you know, T-ball slash manager pitch. It's, it's just, it's a mess, right? But <laughs> if you've ever been to some of those games, but, but they were at practice the other night and I go over there and I see my son, he's talking to a couple of the other boys and I go over to talk to him. And well, I guess one of his, two of the other kids see me and one of the kids, not my son, but one of the kids says to the other kid, is that your dad pointing to me? And I'm smiling, goof walking over there and the kid looks at him and he goes, I don't have a dad. And I was like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that that young He didn't say, I don't see my dad. He didn't say, I only, you know, my dad doesn't live with me. He literally says, I don't have a dad. And I thought, this kid, I mean, God bless him. But when you, you know, what good parents are is they're a tailwind, they help you go further, faster, right? And what difficult parents are is a headwind, right? They can make life difficult by what they did or what they didn't do for the rest of your life. And so what we see here is we've got Moses' parents. They're incredibly godly. I mean, God bless them. They're trying to hide him, okay? Um, now, look what, look, listen here. What the edict was, if you don't know this, from, from chapter one, if you weren't with us last week, in chapter one, um, Pharaoh makes this edict. He says, look, we're going to kill all baby boys, throw them into the Nile River. Now, the Nile River is not like the Yatkin River, okay? <laughs> it's a little bit bigger. It's a little bit faster, okay? And so this is like a sure death sentence, and let's just be honest we don't know this from scripture. We just know this from experience. No mom is going to ever throw their kid in the river. So what this means is they were breaking into homes, taking these kids and killing them. I mean, I hate to be so blunt and graphic, but that's what was happening. And so they have to hide their kid, right? And so here's what happens. Look at verse three. Verse three says this, when she could hide him no longer, I mean, how do you hide a baby, right? I mean, they, all they do is cry. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. But she was able to hide him for a little bit. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. Now, you're going to see here, it's looking back. This, this is very much like Noah in the ark. Moses is going to have a basket made. He's going to be put in a basket, put on water, and he's going to escape judgment. See all the, isn't scripture beautiful how it's all interconnected? Here's what's happening here. She could, she, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. Same things that were made in the ark. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Verse four, and his sister, Moses, by the way, is the youngest of three. There's Miriam, there's Aaron, and then there was Moses. And his sister, we don't know how old she is, but she stands at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, here's what's interesting. Moses' mom and dad have to do immediately what you and I will have to do eventually with our kids. Make sense? They have to immediately say, all right, right, look, I'm going to do the best I can with what I have for as long as I can. But I'm going to eventually have to give my child to the Lord. And I'm going to eventually have to trust that the Lord is going to take care of him." or take care of her, right? This is a big, this is, by the way, you know, people always wonder like, well, why do we do certain things? Why do we do you know, parent dedication or parent commissioning and child dedication? It's really to reenact this moment. It's to say, look, we need to at a very young age, as very young parents of very young children, we need to realize they're the lords. And what are you going to do? You're going to try to protect them all your life from everything that could ever harm them? Are we gonna bubble wrap them? I mean, right, I'm, I, now, you, it's like I had a conversation with a very godly older man, and we were talking about raising kids, and he said something to me, he said, you've got to decide, there's going to be a time you're going to have to send your kids to war. You could decide, when, I mean, you know, I'm talking spiritually, when is it? And how are you preparing them? Because, you know, you, we can't ultimately protect them, we have to prepare them. It's like, I didn't tell this story in the first service, but... My daughter, she's into reading all these books. She's eight years old. You know, we're trying to. It's hard, right? You're trying to watch like what books are they reading and what's in it, and you know, it's like if anything, anything written after like 2012, I'm like, I don't know what's in there, right? You know, that's sometimes how it feels. And so the other day, you know, yesterday actually, uh, my daughter comes over to me and she's like, Dad, there's something in this book that made me feel really weird. I want to talk to you about it, and I won't go into detail about it. So she shows me it. It's in. I mean, it's not an inappropriate book in, in a whole, but there's this whole section, of course, all about with a sexual agenda. Let's just say that. And we, when we talked about it, I said, Addie, I said, I trust you so much. I said, you, and and I said, you're not going to be able to tell me anything that scares me. And there's nothing you're going to talk to me about that I don't already know. What am I going to take the book away from her and tell her she can't read anymore? And, and I don't know, put her in some glass padded room where nothing can happen to her. It's like, well, you know, we did our research. We're trying to make sure that she's not reading completely inappropriate things. And we're trying to make sure that at age-appropriate ways we're talking about it. But it's like, you, you don't want your kids to be naive. You want them to be innocent. And, you know, when you figure out how to do that, tell me, okay? It's very difficult. <laughs> but we're just, you know, so, so that's what we're trying to do. And so they realize they have, they have to give their, their child up to the Lord. Now, now look what happens. This is where you got to trust because it didn't look like he was going to be okay. He's in the Nile River. But I want you to see what happens next. Verse five, now the daughter of Pharaoh, so the right person, one of the only people who would have the power to do something nice to a Hebrew person to be okay. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. She goes to the right, she's the right person at the right place at the right time. This is how providence works. God's working every detail of our lives together. While her young woman, uh, yeah, her young woman, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, so maybe it gets caught, we're not sure, and and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So this works out so much so that Moses' mom gets paid to be his mom. <laughs> Some of you moms are like, how does this happen, right? She ends up getting paid. We don't know for how long. We don't know if Moses, you know, you'll see this in a moment. But, but here, here's another principle from scripture that again, there's difference between principles and promises. Principle is like you see something that happens and it, it often will happen or sometimes does happen. It's not a promise. But a principle from scripture is sometimes when you give something up to the Lord, you get it back. Right? I mean, this isn't the only time this happens. What does Abraham do? I'm willing to give my son up. It's another, I'm willing to trust you, Lord. I'm willing to trust you've got a plan This doesn't make sense to me. And the Lord gives, them, gives Abraham Isaac back. So what ends up happening is Moses' mom makes a decision, Lord, I'm going to trust you. She gets her child back. Now, look, she'll have to give him up again in a minute. If you, look, if you go to verse 10, here's what it says. When the child grew older, so we don't know exactly how old this is, maybe somewhere 9, 10 years old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. If you write in your Bible, you might want to write first adoption in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? You know, we... Christians have been adopting before Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie made it cool, okay? <laughs> if you know that, you can read about that. They, they actually made it culturally cool. It's like, oh, it's cool. Celebrities adopt. Maybe we should adopt. Christians have always been about adoption because we realize God has adopted us. And what's, what's amazing is you've, you've got, well, let me finish this sentence here. So she became, he became her son, verse 10. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, this is so interesting because what happens, and this is a lot like your life, his life doesn't start out well. He's got great godly parents, but like, again, he's a male when he, sh- when he would've been okay if he's female. He's a Hebrew when he would've been okay if he was an Egyptian, you know. He's born at the wrong time to the wrong family, I mean, humanly, culturally speaking. But then at the same time, God's moving everything together where now his life's changing for better, it looks like, humanly speaking again. All of a sudden, he gets to be in Pharaoh's house to the glory of God. This is exactly what you guys want. You're like, I wanna be Tim Tebow. I wanna score the touchdown and God give the glory, right? That's who we all wanna be. We don't wanna not make the team. To the glory of God. We want to be Tim Tebow, glory to God, right? And so what's happening is, what's interesting is early in his life, and by the way, Acts 7, Hebrews 11, if you want to write those down for community group stuff, in Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, parts of that cha- those chapters talk more about Moses, because he's such a big character and uh, person in scripture. And we're told that he gets an Egyptian education. That's what we're told in, I think it's Acts 7, that he gets a Egyptian education while in Pharaoh's house, which would have been the, it's the Harvard of the day. The Princeton, the Yale of the day. He ends up getting the best possible education. You go, because people go, well, God can use anyone. Well, that's true, but he often likes to prepare them. You know, don't use that as an excuse to be lazy. I can eat Cheetos all day on the couch and God will use me. Well, maybe, maybe right? But maybe he wants to use you and prepare you and change you. And so, okay, Moses is gonna write the first five books of the Bible. The most foundational, formative part of the Scriptures that everything else references. What does God do to, to, to prepare the person Who's going to write that? He lets them get the best education possible. Just so you know, Christians have always, I don't know how we've become in society considered the anti-intellectuals. Christians, when we got to the new world, America, they called it the new world. When they got here, they built Harvard in five years. I mean, go read the history. They were freezing and there was famines and they were dying. And they're like, we gotta build Harvard. Because we love education. We've gotta educate the mind. And I think today we just lost this. I mean, we, we should take every freshman in college and go, If you will, I want you to understand what your ancestors had to go through to create an environment where you could have four years off to learn. And that you actually, you actually have as much freedom as you will ever have and a respectable identity. Those will never go together again. So you're a respectable university student, and you get four years, some of you five years, some of you six years, um, but you, you get a, it's like, well, what, what do you tell people? It's like, learn the Bible, learn history, read great books, become the most well-spoken, articulate version of yourself, and then go shine a light somewhere. It's like, that's what everyone should go, that, okay, great, then I can't get hung over. I can't. Because there's a higher calling in my life than fraternities and sororities and social clubs and athletics and and activities. It's like, well, it's incredible. This is what we see with Moses. He's got this incredible education, but then I love how honest the Bible is. Then that was, so this is the prosperity, kind of Pharaoh's house kind of part of his life. Now we're gonna get to see the poverty, the problems, the pain, the sin, the struggles, the failures, the faults. Look at uh, verse 10, or sorry, verse 11. Verse 11, between verse 10 and 11, something like 30 years passes. Here's what it says. One day when Moses had grown up, he's somewhere around 40 years old uh, in this passage. He went out to the people and he looked on their burdens. Now we don't know if he did this often or if this is the first time he really does this, but something happens to where he's able to see things from a new perspective for the first time it looks like. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, how would he know he was a Hebrew? Because his mom and dad would have circumcised him before they put him in the basket. So he would have known his whole life that he was different. He would have known that he was a Hebrew. Here's the way we would say it. Hebrew was his spiritual identity. Egyptian was his cultural identity. You know, we might say, you know, Christian, our spiritual identity, American is our cultural identity. And the problem is, right, right, we all have to wrestle just like he is. What am I more, right? And, that, and, and most of us, if you're not thinking about it, you're going to, the, the influence, you know, culturally is going to be a lot more to be just American than Christian, right? If all you do is save and spend, but you don't ever give, well, that's very American of you, not very Christian of you. If your whole life's about your individualistic, autonomous, private life that no one can say anything to you, it's, well, that's very, very American, if you're like, I don't want accountability, I don't like authority, I don't want community, it's like, well, very American of you. Not very Christian, but very American of you. If, if you. if you only come here when it's convenient and the football game's not on and you have nothing else to do, very American of you, not very Christian. And so he has to wrestle with these things. He's re- he, maybe he wrestled at different times. We get this major, he's wrestling, who am I? And then here's what he does. Look at verse 12. So he sees this, and then it says this. He looked this way and that. Now, why do you look this way and that? If you're going to do something you know you shouldn't do, right? He looks every way but up, right? Which is very common, We're, are we alone? Are the kids gone? Is the, is the spouse gone? Is nobody else around? Am I, am I traveling? Nobody else can see this? He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And if you know the story, this is going to change his life forever. And he probably thinks God's done with him after this, right? And I want, to talk, I want to talk about this because this is all of our stories. I want to give you a lot of hope. Because he does what you and I do, which is in a moment of not thinking rightly, we, we indulge in a sinful passion and then try to hide it. That's exactly what he does. You know, before he's going to be Moses the mediator, he's Moses the murderer. That's the first thing we're really told about him as an adult, Right? And, and this, is, this is what people do all the time. It's like, you know, hide the pill bottle at the bottom of the trash can where no one can see it. Because I know I, I, I take prescription pills that I don't really need. But I don't want anyone to know. So when I do it, I have to hide it. Use the incognito browser, delete your history, pay cash. It's like when you do those things, you're telling yourself, I don't like what I'm doing. And I don't want anyone else to know that I'm doing these things, and so I have to create kind of this, you know, a- a- Adam and Eve use fig leaves and bushes to hide their sin, and Moses uses sand, sand, but it's the same story. But what I want to encourage you in is it, and we'll get into this in a few minutes more, but this is, God is, God somehow, and it'll hurt your head if you think about it too much, but somehow God is going to use this man's greatest failure and his greatest sin to redirect him. It's going to take a while to redirect him to exactly where God wants to have him. Like, I don't know if you ever heard of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, he was part of the Nixon administration. He was part of the Watergate scandal. He's brilliant. He's with the Lord now. but, But he was a brilliant man, highly educated. So you could say he grew up in Pharaoh's house. He gets in trouble with the Watergate scandal. He goes to prison. He comes to Christ in prison. And for the rest of his life, he has a heart for prison ministry. And he uses his prosperity, his education in Pharaoh's house, and he uses his pain and his own sin and his problems being in prison and seeing how hard it is and how little gospel witness there is. And Chuck Colson ends up having a worldwide prison ministry. Now, did he want to get there that way? Probably not. Be publicly humiliated and go to jail. But, man, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people in heaven right now that are thankful that Chuck Colson did that. And that the Lord redirected his steps through all of that. And so what happens is Moses, he sins grievously. And then look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, so he's like, all right, no one probably knows about, you know, uh, that I killed this guy. I mean, I did tell my one friend, you know. And this, it's like people wonder, how, how are people going to find out that he, he ends up, uh, you know, killing this guy? He, he probably, we don't know for sure. Probably happens what happens in our you know, in our, in our uh, churches today, which is he probably said, hey, listen, I did this, please don't tell anyone. And then that person went to community group and goes, hey, guys, we need a prayer request. Moses killed someone. Um, <laughs> we, need to pray. We, need to, we need to pray for him. So somehow the, it, it got out. The next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian, right? And this is what happens. If you, By the way, if you ever try to confront someone about their sin, and they're not humble, and they don't want to really grow, and they don't really want to repent, they'll just point out something you've done, and a reason why you can't say anything to them. And they actually already have thought through this, right? Really sophisticated people know what they'll say about you. Some of you do this. You actually know what you would say about somebody if they ever tried to call you out. You've kept the, you you know, and have they done something worse? Because you'll be ready to tell them. And so that's what happens here. Then it looks like this. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled. He fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, this is a dark season in Moses' life, and we don't know, you know, we read these verses, he's going to end up being in Midian for 40 years. And and this has happened to some of you. I mean, some of you, you, either you did something terrible or somebody you're connected to did something terrible that became very public, and all of a sudden, you're in media, basically. You know, this happens, somebody, you know, you, you have a spouse and they've cheated on you. It's like, well, you've got a lot of questions. Like, who are you? Well, did you ever have a relationship? Well, why did they do that? How did you not know that they did that? How, are you the kind of person who can't see those kind of things? You you know, imagine you go in, you think you're going in, your boss calls you in for a job, you know, interview, and you think, this is great, I'm gonna get a raise, I'm gonna get a promotion, and he says, you're the worst person we have here. And you're gone effective immediately today and you have no severance pay. You're like, really? I mean, this is kind of what happened to him in his own way. He's like, who am I? Everything that I thought was true about me isn't true anymore, I'm not rich anymore, I don't have a community around me anymore, I don't live where I used to live. I mean, this is really, this happens to people every once in a while, their life, and it's very hard to recover. And so he's in a very dark area of his life wondering probably God's not gonna use me. Maybe, maybe I, at one point I thought that he was gonna use me. Maybe I even had desires to be used by God. I mean, we don't know all his motives of why he even tried to break up the Egyptian and in, in the Hebrew. We, we don't know how much of a sense of mission he had already. But he thinks it's all over, and then look what happens. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters... And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So now we, we kind of, again, we're seeing him as a deliverer a little bit. We're seeing him a little bit as, as a type of savior. This time he seems to do it well. Look at verse 19, or verse 18. When they came home to their father, Ruel, and by the way, you, you know, Ruel, everywhere else in Exodus and in the Bible was called Jethro. So we don't know if Ruel is his surname, but this is the famous Jethro, who will be show, show up many other places. It says this. When they came home to their father, um, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, "An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is amazing. Really, if you would say, who is the one hero, humanly speaking, who's the one person who's a hero, really, in Exodus chapter 2, it's Jethro. Because what Jethro is going to do, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but obviously Moses probably ends up telling him what he did. Hey, I killed a guy. My whole life's falling apart. I, maybe, who, we don't know all of his motives. We don't know if he had good motives or not. We don't know what his plans were. And Jethro puts his arm around him. I mean, he gives him his daughter. It's interesting. A, a lot of scholars go, well, because Moses is going to have to, why is he in Midian? Well, he's going to have to lead the people through Midian in the wilderness. And how does he learn that land really well? Most people think Jethro taught him. And he's the priest of Midian. So most people think, you know, Moses doesn't know about God very much. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. In the next chapter, we'll see this next week, you know, God shows up and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses seems like, I've heard of you. Well, where did he hear of him from? He hardly had any time with his parents. Most people think Jethro discipled him. It's like, you know, what do you, what do you need? And, and this is why we have multi-generational leaders from the church. It's like, what do you need when you've really messed up? You need a Jethro, or if you're a woman, a Jethra, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you really do. You need somebody that's going to put your arms around you, right? There's, there's, a, there's not many places, particularly for men, right? There's a lot of places men could go today to ruin their lives and, and to get in the, a lot of trouble. There's not a lot of places men could come and get built up and get encouraged and get help. And so, you know, really the call here is it's like, we've got some incredible men in this church. You know, I say to the older men, and that's at different levels, whatever, it's like, man, what would it be like for you to be a Jethro in somebody else's life? It's actually where, it, I mean, just telling you on a level, it's actually where you find a ton of meaning. A ton of meaning in your life is, you know, once you've established yourself, which is what Jethro did, and you kind of have to establish yourself to really be able to do this, but Jethro's got seven daughters, he's got a job, he knows the land, he has a house, he, he's, gonna, he's not going anywhere for a while. And so he's got, he obviously has a big enough house to say, hey Moses, you can stay, here's a daughter. Most people think he taught him how to shepherd, he taught him about God, he taught him about the land. It's like, man, uh, we we live in a fatherless generation. Some of you older men, you're gonna need to help some of these young guys. Here's how you get a mortgage, here's how you do investing, here's how you read your Bible, here's how you respect a woman, here's how you raise kids. People don't know how to do those things. And so, you know, a multi-generational church, either you're looking for a Jethro or you are a Jethro. You're looking for a Jethro or you are a Jethro, okay? And this is going to be the key, I believe this is the key turning point in Moses' life. We're going to see that for the rest of Moses' life, he's going to seek his father-in-law's advice. I mean, what kind of guy do you have to be? I mean, what what a great view of your life. Be a great father-in-law. You know, be the type of man or be the type of woman, other people look at your life and go, I'd like to learn from you in at least one area of your life. And then experience the joy of releasing them and seeing them be fruitful and successful and faithful in different areas of their lives. So this is what changes his whole life. Verse 21 says, verse 22, she gave birth, or sorry, verse 21, he was, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his son Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. So interestingly enough, chapter 2 begins with the birth of a son, and it ends with the birth of a son. And in between is just a story of a bunch of great daughters. That's, that's the story. It's really neat. And uh, it says this. He called him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That, that part of what's happening is there's going to be no quick fixes for Moses, right? He's going to have to be mentored by an older man. He's going to get married, and he's going to have kids. Now, we're not saying you can't be used by God if you're single. Obviously, you can. That was the story last week of the midwives, greatly used by God as single women. But what does God often do? God often says, okay, I'm going to give you a lot of time. You're going to spend time around great older men or great older women. You're going to get married. You're going to have kids. And there's something that happens when you have a child and you're responsible for somebody who will outlive you. As soon as you're responsible for someone who will live much longer than you, it changes the way you think about life. Moses is going to end up being a shepherd. Okay, If you read in, in, in the book of Genesis, it says that the Egyptians despise shepherds. So, God's doing two things. First, He's getting Moses out of Egypt. Second, He's getting Egypt out of Moses. He, he's got to get this whole old mindset of how you think about things, of how you think about sex, of how you think about leadership, of how you think about family. Just so you know, the reason we call ourselves Two Cities Church is because we're going to be a city within the city. We're going to do everything that's meaningful differently. We do money differently. We do family differently. We do forgiveness differently. We do leadership differently. We, we do it all differently. And Moses is going to have to learn all of these things. And then look, look how the chapter ends. So far, God's not been mentioned by name until we get to verse 23. It says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So what does God providentially use? He uses pain in your life. He uses prosperity. He uses problems. He uses people. He, and he uses prayer. I mean, what, this is, these people have been praying for 400 years. You want to talk about, I mean, this is the first mention of unanswered prayer in the Bible. Which is like, if you've been a Christian for more than like 10 days, you're going to struggle with unanswered prayer. I mean, they're passionately praying for God to move and they've been praying for 400 years. Which means this, there were people who prayed when they were a little boy and then they were an adult and then they were old and then they died. And guess what they did the whole time? They prayed for the, the Lord would save them from this slavery that they were in. And a whole generation would pass away and that was an unanswered prayer request. And you know, we, we struggled to do that for like four days. Okay, yet alone 400 years of saying, God, would you do something? Would you save my son? Would you change my neighbor's heart? Would you reconcile our families? Whatever it is, he's been praying, they've been groaning about this. And here's what it says, look at verse 24. It's supposed to be incredibly encouraging. And God heard. Yes, he's ruling and running the universe and listening to you. And it should be, incre- that in and of itself, that should be incredibly, com- God heard. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people and God knew. See, how do we know that God, see, we have, we have the advantage of having all the scripture. How do we know that God sees, God knows, God hears, God remembers? Because we have the life of Jesus Christ. We actually have, we can look at Jesus Christ and go, you know what? There was another baby that was born to a family that needed to be hidden and protected. He had good godly parents. In fact, his stepdad adopts him and raises him as his own. And he has this identity as fully God and fully man. It wasn't Hebrew, Egyptian. It's fully God, fully man. Well, why? Well, why, did, why does Moses need to be Egyptian and Hebrew? He's going to need to represent both sides in this conversation. He's going to, need to be able to need to speak to both worlds, why does Jesus have to be fully God, fully man? He needs to represent both sides. He needed to be a man to obey for us. He needed to be God to be able to do it and to pay the full penalty of our, of, of our sin. That Moses and Jesus were both underst- misunderstood by their people when they were trying to save them. So, so Jesus comes to the people and he says, while they're crucifying him, please, Father, forgive them. Jesus doesn't act out of passion, but out of patience. Instead of taking life, he lays down his life. And just like Moses ends up defending his future bride from enemies at the well, Jesus Christ defends his future bride at the cross. And so we just have this incredible encouragement. And and here's what's so encouraging. In the midst of Moses' sin and struggle, in the midst of being 40 years in the wilderness, this whole time he doesn't know that I'm going to end up being the answer to somebody else's prayers. That's an interesting way to think about your life in a very humble way, that you might end up being the answer to somebody else's prayers. Almost every student that I saw come to faith in Christ when I did college ministry, I'd end up meeting their uncle, or I'd end up meeting their aunt, or I'd end up meeting their mom, or I'd end up meeting their grandmother, and they all told me the same story. Oh, we've been praying for Joey. We we prayed that when he went to college he'd come to Christ. I'm like, oh geez. Wow, you know? We just thought we accidentally bumped into him. You know, you start seeing the providence of God. You know, when you think about the details of your life, I, I realized this. My parents, when I was 16 years old, my parents decided, and I would, and they would say this here today. They are alive, but they're in this room today. They would say, for no good reason, they decided they needed a bigger house when I was 16. Our house was plenty big. And it wasn't a school district or anything. My parents just said, we're gonna move. And I thought, well, that's cool. get a bigger room, you know, this is great. So, so I remember we moved and they said, we moved down this big neighborhood down the street. and. Um, and and uh, I thought, well, this is nice, but I didn't realize that four houses over from me was going to be John Provenzano. And I didn't know John, but I got to know John. And John just got his license. And I was 15 and he was 16. and Or so I was 16 and he was 17. And my parents said, hey, you know, you know, you're new to this neighborhood. We know you're trying to make friends in this neighborhood. You can ride with John. They wouldn't normally let me ride with people who got their license brand new. They said, you can ride with John. Well, John ends up being friends with a guy named Joe Duckcoe. And Joe Duckco comes, came to Faith in Christ and started inviting John to youth group. And the only reason I went was because I wanted to ride in the car with Joe. Or John. I mean, it's so funny now. I'm like, oh, wait a second. So I, if my parents, I mean, humanly speaking, if my parents didn't move in that neighborhood, I don't know if I'd be a Christian. And I, we wouldn't plant Two City Church. You wouldn't be here right now. You'd be somewhere else at some other church. But, but I'm just saying, it's, it's so interesting when you look at your life and go, this almost didn't happen. And it was something as subtle as mom and dad wanted a bigger house. And that changed my eternity. And God was reworking all of these. things. it's just like, wow. And so you might end up being the answer to somebody else's prayer. You might end up being the answer to your own prayer. Right? That's a very, Jesus tells them to pray for laborers. And then they pray for laborers. And he goes, okay, now get out there. <laughs> and they end up being the answer to their own prayers. Because when you pray, it changes your own heart. So I want to respond to, to all that we saw, the providence of God in people's lives. I just want to respond by praying together. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. For some of you, you need to cry out right now. And you just need to, and you need to know this. Maybe the only thing you need to hear today is God hears. And God knows. And God sees. Some of you just need to know that. Some of you need to cry out for salvation right now. We actually know that that's a prayer that God always hears and he always answers immediately. If you say, save my soul, if you say, forgive my sins, if you say, Jesus, I give you my best and my worst. Come into my heart. Change me. I believe that what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross counts for me. Every time that prayer is prayed, God hears it and God answers it. Some of you, you, just need, to, you need to repent and you need to start groaning over something that you stopped groaning over a while ago. You used to pray for your parents' salvation. You used to pray about your kids' salvation. You used to pray for your neighbors. You used to pray for your coworkers. You used to pray that God would heal your mom. You stop praying because it's too painful to keep praying and not having God answer. And the comfort is God hears. Doesn't always mean he answers right away, but he hears. Lord, we just want to come together as a church right now and we want to pray for our city. We love our city, Lord. We know that a lot of people are in crisis. Not as many, as, not as much for many people, it's not a financial crisis as much as it's a family crisis for them. Lord, I pray you would providentially give us the ability to see how you're working in our lives and how you've architected our past so that we could be useful in many people's lives today, Lord. Do this for our good and your glory. We pray this in your name, amen.